the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by the notorious Jimmy, also occasionally known as Jeremy Goldcorn, the man behind Danway.com. Say hello, Jeremy, and tell us how you are doing. I'm doing very, very well indeed. Oh, Kaiser. that's good. I see that you're wearing a Tony Ma shirt. That is correct. Yeah, that's a lovely shirt. I like that shirt. Oh, this is Dan Seneca. We're delighted to be joined by James Palmer, an historian and writer based here in Beijing, author most recently of The Death of Mao, which was published last year, and uh, of late a contributor to the excellent Aeon magazine, an online magazine that publishes a long-form essay a day. Welcome to Seneca, James. Thank you for having me. So James's latest piece, which will be the focus of today's discussion, was a 5,300-word essay on traditional Chinese medicine in China today from a decidedly skeptical perspective. A marvelous read that I heartily endorse. This article is titled, Do Some Harm, which is, of course, a play on the opening line of the Hippocratic Oath, which is, first, do no harm. A couple of weeks ago, when uh, we were recording our podcast on what China is getting right, um, both Jeremy and I sang the praises of state atheism. Uh, the adjective scientific gets deployed in officialdom as a high form of praise, uh, even if it does make people roll their eyes to hear it ad nauseum, as we so often do here. Um, yet, even among many nominal scientists or adherents of science that one meets in China, people who profess no religion at all and live very much as moderns in all other aspects of their lives, there are huge numbers who say that they believe in traditional Chinese medicine, or TCM. It's a subject that many of my skeptical friends, whether Chinese or Western expatriates have learned to avoid completely, um, and I think that's a prudent thing, in order to preserve harmonious relationships with spouses or in-laws or what have you. That's what I do. I just never talk about it. But we will be talking about all about TCM today, about the cosmology that underpins it, about the way the Chinese state backs and promotes it, about its popularity both within and outside of China, and why much of this is deeply, deeply problematic. You, gentle listener, are probably wondering why it is that there are three TCM skeptics on this program, and that's fair. Uh, I should address this question of why we haven't structured this more of, uh, as a debate uh, and invited on a proponent of traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, but I'd initially, I'd, I'd really, I'd initially thought to do just that, and uh, Jeremy talked about it, and we thought that our shared experience with this sort of thing is that it rapidly breaks down, and there's just no common epistemological ground to stand on, much like you know debates over things like creationism and, and evolution. So I'm not really interested in just bashing the unscientific nature of TCM here, but rather in exploring questions about its, um, you know, relationship with this nominally scientific state health system, about its relationship with Chinese culture and identity, uh, and uh, about the difficulties. Let's just of cut uh, cut the crop here, Kaiser. And uh, cu- uh, should I rather no, say, no, let's cut know. to the chase. You and I both have no truck with traditional Chinese medicine, and we were delighted to read an article by James that laid out very clearly many of the reasons why we are suspicious of it. Is that not the case? Therefore, we don't really want another point of view to provide balance because this is an inherently unbalanced podcast. We, (laughs) you and I, the hosts of the show, we don't believe in it, and we have a guest who we think we may... Uh, have many sympathies in common. Okay, so let's, so let's so get into the meat just, of just it. to cool our heads for a little bit. Let's um, before we actually, you know, <laughs> um, before we, we we go on and uh, treat this topic, you know, in the even-handed way that we're sure to. Um, let's 
hear a little bit of a preview, I mean, uh, f- from James's book, The Death of Mao, which I just picked up on Kindle under what I, I had supposed was the UK title because it's a better title. And it, it turns out it was actually the title. That, that title is Heaven Cracks, Earth Shakes, colon, The Tangshan Earthquake and the Death of Mao's China, uh, which I thought was great. Um, tell us a little bit about the book. Well, it's my second book. Oh, it is? Yeah, yes. The, the first one was The Bloody White Ban, which is about uh, Mongolia in the 1920s. Oh, wow. And... Uh, Roman von Ungern Sternberg, who was a white Russian general who took over Mongolian sure. and imposed a, a rule of Buddhist terror there. Um, but this is the most recent, and it came about in the way that, that books do through argument between me and my publisher. And I wanted to do a book on the first Ming emperor, the Hongwu emperor, um, who I find fascinating because... Zhu Yuzhang, yeah. Uh, yes, yes. The, um, he was this sort of wandering monk, hermit, who... Um, then used both religion and millennial feeling and sort of uh, early nationalism or, or ethnicism to, to uh, lead rebellions against the Yuan, against the Mongols, and then to defeat the other sort of contenders for the throne, and then turned against the organizations, the religious cults that had aided his rise to power, wiped out the last remnants of Manichaeism in China, all this kind of thing. Anyway, I thought all oh, this was fascinating. I put together a proposal. I did all this work. My publishers came back and said, this is wonderful. This is great. We can give you a, a, a low amount of money for it because nobody reads medieval Chinese history. I said, what can I do where you will give me a reasonable amount of money? They said, can you do something with Mao? In the title, preferably. Yes. <laughs> no, I don't find Mao that interesting, to be honest. Um, I think Mao is overwritten and uh, enough has been said about him by other people. But what I'm interested in is the experiences of ordinary people in the 60s and 70s, the way the things that they went through and the way in which this, contra- this contrasted with the high-level power politics. And while I'm not that interested in Mao, I was very interested in the Gang of Four and in the other figures in Chinese politics at that time. And I was exceptionally interested in the Tangshan earthquake because uh, I like disaster studies. I think that when we look at disasters, they stress test societies. That's, they bring out true. Yeah. all the best and worst in particular cultures and times and places and infrastructure. And the Tangshan earthquake was such a good example of this, of the ways both in which the, the, the occasional strengths of the Maoist state, um, but also its failings, the way that, for instance, uh, people prioritized saving party leaders above saving their children in some cases, the way in which the countryside was completely neglected, uh, while the city, because of its status as an industrial centre, was uh, received all the attention, um, the way in which politically black people were excluded from receiving aid afterward, all this kind of thing. And also, of course, the conditions that made the earthquake so devastating in the first place because of the, frankly, terrible quality of construction, of safety checks, of all this kind of thing, that created a deadly built-up environment. Um, so I wanted in the book to go between these sort of two levels, between the, the low, the ornate level, uh, the earth of Tangshan, and the intrigues in Zhongnanhai, the, the sort of um, factions competing around the dying Mao, to, um, to show how one affected the other, both how the high-level politics um, created the conditions that, that worsened the impact of the earthquake and that made the disaster relief so ineffective in many cases by, for instance, refusing all foreign aid because it was ideologically incorrect. Wow, I really look forward to reading this book. I mean, it sounds really densely packed with, 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 with great stuff that has a lot of relevance today, I, I think. 
Uh, so I also wanted to make sure that readers check out the other essay that, James, that you contributed to Aeon uh, called The Baling Ho. I'll say a little bit more about it and maybe get James to talk more about it in the recommendations section at the end of the show. Tell us a little bit about Aeon, this magazine. I, I've only really – I discovered it actually only when somebody linked to your Baling Ho article. Yeah, me too. Well, it's very new. Um, I think it was me who linked it, by the way. So Good for you. Credit where credit Thank you. You, know, <laughs> a, you are the yeah. vector here. <laughs> just kidding, the, yeah. just kidding. No, it's it's very new. I think it's uh, nine months, maybe even not nine months old now. And um, started with uh, private money by uh, Paul and Bridget Haynes, who are uh, have a deep commitment to long form journalism, to writing about the uh, the world, our place in the world. So it has a philosophical it has a philosophical scientific um, cultural bent uh, for the most part, and. The piece is normally run between sort of 2,000 and 5,000 words. Mine tend to be on the longer end. Um, I'm going to be doing more stuff for them oh, uh, later this year. Anything that you want to share with us? Well, I'm, I'm still in the process of sort of uh, sorting out the next one. I think uh, possibly on mistresses. Um, um, and on the sort of um, pragmatic choices of young Chinese women. If you need help with the research for that one. You're, you're willing to, you know, dive in there. Well, I, I've been... I uh, dated this girl recently who turned out to be the mistress of a state-owned enterprise official, which was kind of a shock. Inspiration comes from the strangest places. You know, this is this is um, you know this is this is real journalism here, the nitty gritty of of life. So let's let's jump in now and start talking about Chinese medicine. Um, I guess I want to start with helping listeners to understand what the theoretical underpinnings are, the correlative cosmology that is at the heart of TCM, the things like the, the Wuxing or five phases, five elements theory. Um, probably it's more commonly known by five elements, uh, the yin and yang theory. Um, it appears at least as, as far back as the Eastern Zhou, uh, you know, from the 11th century BC to about 771 BC. Um, uh, people... Uh, that would be Western Joe, but I mean, after 771 BC, we already start seeing pretty clear evidence of, of yin-yang cosmological thinking, um, you know, from among people living in the Wei River Basin and the Yellow River floodplain. Um, they had, you know, looked around in the world they lived in, and they saw some very basic cycles, uh, the day, of course, the year with its changing seasons, birth, growth, decay, and living things. And so the ideas of yin and yang, of complementary opposites, of of, of rising and declining in cyclical pattern. Uh, that was all, I think we can all agree, stuff that you would, I mean, you know, it, it made a lot of sense. It seemed to describe a lot of the observable phenomena in nature. Um, and this was later, you know, sort of codified and, 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 and made more, more, more direct uh, with things like, you know, a, a proper wuxing theory, which involved, you know, the five elements, you know, ji mu shui huo tu, metal, wood, water, fire, and earth. I think it's uh, important to emphasize here that these theories weren't unique to Chinese medicine or just about the body. They right. were cosmological underpinnings that defined how intellectuals, um, and these were intellectual theories. Um, they were even politics. The world. Right, right. I mean, this oh, is, yeah, they had all kinds of applications. Yeah, I mean, just as, as one example, um, you know, the, the, the Qin, the state of Qin, uh, which was one of the seven final uh, warring states, uh, they played on on this very 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 much. I mean, they they 
the there there were these cycles of generation. You know, earth begets metal, metal begets water, uh, metal begets water through, I guess, uh, the uh, evapor. I mean, I mean, condensation. They'd see, you know, on a bronze vessel, water would 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 appear on the outside as as though spontaneously. Water, of course, begets wood. Wood begets fire. Fire begets earth. And then there were these this uh, there's this other cycle cycle of of conquest. Uh, which is more relevant here, where metal conquers wood, wood conquers earth, earth conquers water, water conquers fire, fire conquers metal, in the, so a cycle like that. And so they position themselves as uh, the as related to the element of water, which was uh, related to the color black and the number six. So um, if you look at a, a lot of the features of the early Qin state, the number six figures, or, or six times six, 36, for example, of 36... Uh, Administrative regions into which China was divided, uh, the six ministries, which lasted most, you know, through through most of of of, of, of imperial China, um, and so all these things they all have their correspondences, right? I mean, everything correlates. Yes, I mean everything. So, I mean, if we take the elements, each of them has an organ that it correlates with. It has a color. It has a number. It has a, a star. Or a star. Um, it has a, a, a it has rather oddly a season, which is quite um, well. They call it the interstitial seasons. seasons as, yes, as one, yeah. Right? The, uh, and you know, there's this. This is something we find in in all almost all pre-modern worldviews. I think the idea of relations between things that um, there's a pattern, an underlying pattern that you can see in everything, and you find it in Europe with uh, you know the great chain of being, the way that society reflects nature. You find it in ancient Greece, of course, with uh, elemental theory. Um, later, with the humors, um, right. which in Medieval medicine in the West, the humans corresponded to stars. They corresponded to uh, my emotions, personal favorite is phlegm. Of, phlegmatic. I mean, phlegmatic is very good, and they, they still pervade our language, as we can see. Melancholy, choleric, right. phlegmatic. These are all things that we've taken from medical theories, uh, theories of the world that are two thousand five hundred years old in the West. And there's some crossover, in fact, between Chinese medicine and European medicine, because of course this stuff goes through the Arabs. Uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of European medieval medicine came out of Greek texts being preserved by the Arabs. Which in turn, Arabic medicine was influenced or likely influenced. Is, it, is this well documented? It's this semi-documented. The stuff there's obvious parallels that may be simultaneous invention, but then there also seem to be actual things going through the Silk Road, going through the Turks and the Arabs that go between China and Europe. And I think one of the things that we're seeing in medieval um, history at the moment is much more focused on Eurasia, much more focused on the kind of idea of the world system and uh, international trade, sure. um, bringing with it ideas that uh, sort of sw- went back and forth, even if sometimes in very diluted or strange form. And I mean, you can, um, you know, you see it in you can you, you see it in art, you see it in religion, all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it would be surprising in one sense if medicine hadn't been part of the the kinds of ideas transmitted. So, so taking it back to Chinese mm-hmm. medicine, though, and, and how uh, the, the correlative cosmology actually uh, affects ideas about physiology, uh, can you explain a little bit about this idea that uh, the human body is, in some sense, a microcosm of, of the universe, of the macrocosm? Well, I think you've put it pretty well. The, um, the idea is that the, the body reflects the wider universe. So effectively, um, the... 
the universe I mean, quite is literally, in, right? Quite literally, yes. Right. And, and it, or, geographically, in some cases, like yeah. the meridians of the body correspond to the major rivers of China. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always very Sinocentric, of course, which is one of the wonderful things about all this stuff. It's um, <laughs> like those uh, reincarnation books in which your previous life was always in China and your next life will also be in China. Right. Um, because who would want to go anywhere else? Well, I mean, it's the same everywhere. I mean, every, everyone in the West was somehow descended from, you know... David oh, or, right, right, right. Um, David or uh, Abraham, but the um, um, so when it's different. It's different. They're, they're, they're Jewish. Everybody does. Yes, <laughs> as the Jewish people. <laughs> so uh, the meridian lines correspond to the, the major meridian river lines systems. correspond to the twelve major rivers of Your China. Elementary canal itself is the Yellow River, I believe. Right? You um, and you know, just like when the. When the universe is out of balance, when the in particular places there are manifestations of this, which Chinese um, not you kind of Chinese intellectuals were very interested in, they would go and seek these out. They would go and seek out natural phenomena that they would describe as, you know, as an imbalance of air or an excess of earth or this kind of thing. And these same theories were applied to the body. Now, in practice, a lot of this is fairly high-level intellectual theory slapped onto a whole bunch of pragma- of pragmatic treatments and uh, folk healing, all this kind of thing. So there's a mixture of things. There are, there are treatments that are derived from the theory, and then there are treatments that are kind of worked into the theory where they found that something worked or seemed to work, and then they said, oh, it works because It's just sort of shoehorned into yes. the existing system. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Um, so, for any, I mean, a concrete example of that that I, I know of personally is, say, the herb ephedra, which is basically speed or... Uh, the same stuff that you find in cold medicine. Mahuang, right. Mahuang, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, so that's a that's a remedy, right? And it is in fact an actual drug, right? So that would be an example. Well, of I mean, it's it's one works. of the the, the Mahuang was almost never administered just by itself. It was always put into mixtures. I mean, this is something mm-hmm. that we'll we'll get into mm-hmm. with a whole bunch of other different herbal things. But, but I mean, just to be simple, Mahuang is ephedra. It's an actual drug. It works, and then there's a theory to, to back it up. But what would be an example of something that's uh, purely theoretical? Well, let's understand. I mean, I guess what you want to talk about is the, the five different organs of the body, five, <laughs> and and uh, how in health there is a, a, a clear flow. I mean, there is an unimpeded flow of chi, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which is, of course, this of yang chi and yin chi, of the right. two types of chi. The yeah. two types of chi, right, um, flowing back and forth. And, uh, th- I mean, we say organs, but that's a simplification in some s- senses. They're, they're more functions. They're things that the body is doing, which happen to be manifest in these particular places, but their relation to anatomy, even in even accepting a TCM worldview, their relation to anatomy is uh, much more tenuous than in uh, con- than in actual biology. Um, well, gee, really? <laughs> and when you know um, when the flow of one of these elements is uh, disrupted, when you're you get this manifests as an excess or a the opposite of an excess, a an incest, a, a, yeah, um, deficit of a deficit of uh, it's uh, of one of the elements, which then manifests as uh, heat, right. dampness. I'm going to blank on the others right now. Right, I, I know, I know what you mean. They're, they're basically like the humors, right? You know? Yeah, they they correspond. There's ten of them, um, one excess and one, uh, one deficit one, for yeah, each one. of the humors. Um, and the one you hear most about, sort of in in China, tends to be the heat. That's right, the yeah, because heat. Because the thing is, heat easily corresponds to something that we can actually measure. That is temperature. Hmm. So you can say if somebody if somebody has a fever, some it's um, we can talk. You, then you can 
point to it, you can point to a clear symptom, you can say this is an excess of heat. It's much more tricky with the others in some ways. Um, But often with these, the... um, I suspect in practice what happened a lot of the time with medical treatment was that people uh, did things that worked or seemed to work or found ways around things or did particular treatments uh, and then bothered with the theory afterwards because that's how medicine works all over the world. Even even in uh, Western conventional medicine, there are a bunch of treatments which we don't have a clear theoretical idea of how they work, sure. but which have been tested and proven to work. And while the uh, empirical methods to test Chinese medicine were lacking, um, but as they were all over the world, of course, they were working on simple observation and case studies and this kind of thing, they nevertheless were able to find out things that worked or that benefited from the placebo response and then work them into the theory. To, to what extent do modern practitioners of TCM uh, still subscribe to, to the theory, to the cosmology? It depends on who they're talking to. There are, but you will encounter people who still sort of make you, reference many, to... I think, I think the majority of them genuinely believe in the theory that there's something to the theory, though they believe in it in a kind of fuzzy way. Right. Um, and sometimes they see it as... Sometimes so they, they pick and choose. They pick and choose a, a little a bit. Of, of religious but people do today, right? It's, uh, I think um, also... Uh, I, some of them would say that, there are, that these are descriptions of spiritual, metaphorical processes rather than <clears throat> corresponding to clear physical things. And that... There's value in using those metaphors, value in using those ideas, even if they don't have a direct physical correspondence. But then I think the, I think um, for most believers in TCM, for, for most people who go to a TCM doctor or this kind of thing, they, ha- they have the same kind of vague understanding of the theory uh-huh. as people in the West do of, say, the immune system or viruses or this kind of thing. We have a... Most of us do not have a in-depth scientific understanding of how our body works, of how our health works. Right. We don't know how the lymphatic system yeah, works. We'll, we'll, we say, we'll say, oh, you know, our, it's a, we create these it works by strengthening the immune system. I mean, this is such a vague and general term. What does that really mean? Does that mean you know, in, increasing your, your white blood cell count or, you know, Some, but then in, you, have, or, you have people in, you also have TCM practitioners who really and genuinely believe in the theory, believe that things are going on that uh, science can't measure. Um, James, for yourself, I mean, you know, you've, you've written this article. I mean, can, could we basically say that you do not believe at all in the theory? Well, I don't believe in, at all in the theory is a theory that corresponds to biological reality. I think like any other system of thought, there are, it has ways of thinking about ourselves and thinking about our place in the universe, which as long as we treat them as metaphorical, as long as we don't try to pretend that they have biological correspondences, that they have a physical reality, are important and useful. So as a philosophy, you take it seriously. As medicine, as science for well, treating sick people, no. Of course not, yeah. It's, but again, that's not to say that within, of course, this corpus of treatments, there's plenty of stuff that, will, that probably works, that probably has a non-placebo effect. Yeah, let's, let's get to that later because mm-hmm. I, mean, I have a very yeah, specific yeah. question. I want to talk about that and, and to what extent we can actually um, you know, make use of the very extensive pharmacopoeia. Well, you, you, you point out, though, and I think and, and it's very fair to say that before the 19th century, I mean, I'm quoting from you now, a patient was probably better off going to a Chinese doctor than a Western one. The odds of either being helpful 
were slim, of either being helpful were slim, but at least the Chinese doctor, thanks to a disdain for internal intervention, wouldn't slice you open with unsterilized instruments. That's, that's, that's fair. Well, and they weren't so obsessed with bleeding, too. So, you know, that's another plus. I mean, honestly, given the state of, given the state of European medicine uh, before the 19th century, Chinese medicine had a distinct edge. Um, it had a better pharmacopoeia. It, it did less bad things. Right. Um, and it did some good things. That's fair. Now, um, when when uh, the twentieth century rolled around, we had a couple of major movements of of cultural iconoclasm. The first, of course, was in the, the period of uh, after the First War. Uh, the, the new the new culture movement really kind of started around the time of the First War, and and the May Fourth Movement, which of course takes its name from nineteen nineteen. Uh, and in that period, uh, Chinese medicine was among the many. Uh, artifacts of, of the old culture that came under serious assault, it survived. And it survived uh, through the Republican period, through, uh, through the, the very anti-traditional period of, of the Cultural Revolution. Um, why is that? I think that's, that's one of the, the interesting issues that you address in there. How, how did it survive? So it came under fire, of course, because not only because it was traditional and there was a general hostility to all things traditional and because Western medicine was such an obvious improvement and was, such, was bringing such obvious benefits to so many people. Uh, but the thing was, there was this kind of tension in the 20s between what was new, what was modern, and what was Chinese. So this is... And it's, it's a period, of course, at which, you know, what is China, what is... Uh, what is our culture? What is our history? What do we need to keep? Is something that's being hotly, de- hotly debated. Right. The, the good old tension between what is mine and what is true. The meum and verum. The Joseph Levinson bit. I don't, and, I don't know if you've read him, but I, well, there's I, this whole. Um, I haven't actually, but right. I'll get that from you afterwards. The um, there's this whole. So there's this whole tendency with Chinese medicine. Even the proponents of it, then at least the the academic proponents, the intellectuals, are saying this. There's stuff here, this, but this, but they want to approach it scientifically. They want to um, strip it of the superstitious quotation marks elements, um, such as bef- at that period, um, astrology, sure. incantations, all this kind of thing still play uh, still played a pretty big role in most TCM. Even though, in fact, a lot of the uh, classic TCM texts are expressly against them, um, they were a big part of common treatment, of common practice. And so they're saying, okay, if we get rid of this, we can find real treatments, real theories. Um, this is a time at which Western medical science was still developing. And this was in many ways, I, I think, a, a reasonable viewpoint to say, okay, what can we look back on here? But that came, this came with a, this cultural sort of chauvinism. And it comes at this idea that, okay, this is ours. This is something that we made, that we did. This... Even a, and something that people could point to and say, we had this when you know your ancestors were still painting themselves blue. You you, you refer to it in your essay as a comforting national myth. Yes, yes, yes. Very it's, well put. Which is, and it's you know I think um, every non-Western culture went through this with the with imperialism with colonialism went through this going back this simultaneously being torn between modern and ancient. But this this seems to be one of the things that was clung to with particular tenacity. I mean, I remember uh, 
when my father first went to China in 1975, one of the, the I mean, he, he, he had his Potemkin village tours and so forth, but one of the things that they were insistent that he witness, and everyone seems to have witnessed this, were, were these operations that were, that were performed on people who were fully conscious and only had, had, had a, a bunch of needles stuck Which, in them. Which, like most of these things on those trips, were fakes, of course. They, those, people were, um, they, those people were drugged up. Um, just not. They weren't given conventional anesthetic, but they were given a given a whole bunch of other painkillers, oh. um, and in a couple of cases, the operations were shams. Um, there's, um, and I think the the reason, but the, one of the reasons people clung to it wasn't just the nationalism, but also that it was it was the medicine that most people knew. It was the stuff that they'd grown up with. Um, I I mean, I grew up with um, I. I grew up with herbal treatments that, you know, my family thought were effective. Um, I'm trying to think of there's, there's Socks lots of and bruise, cobwebs. Uh, no, no, one there's there's a there's one that's very common in England for bruises that's a homeopathic medicine. It's essentially useless, but <laughs> we had no idea it was homeopathic, so we took it and we felt better. It was water with the memory it's of a, onion in it. It's <laughs> sugar pills, you know. They um so this the stuff that people grow up with, the stuff that your grandmother tells you is good, the stuff that you're used to hearing is it's very hard to to throw the stuff away. And when the nationalist government tried, they, they, there was, was in fact an effort to abolish the teaching and practice of traditional medicine and create a purely Western curriculum. Under Chiang Kai-shek? Under, yeah, under Chiang Kai-shek. With, now, I think in, in the new life 1929... Oh, right. That early. That, that very early, there's this... Uh, one of the first nationalist congresses, there's this effort, and then there's a strike in response. There was a mass strike of traditional pharmacists and doctors... Huge protests across the country, uh, and so the the nationalist government acknowledged TCM as a separate thing, created this two track system, and this two track system survives today. Huh. So I mean, I I, I think it, its survival today is is um, is what we can move on to next. Uh, one of the things that you talk about um, that you attribute its its survival to is just the, the 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 failures and the inadequacies of modern medicine as practiced currently in. Well, and sadly, too much of China, and how that has really contributed to the continuing popularity of, of TCM. I mean, in one very, very poignant part of this essay, I mean, Jeremy, you and I have all had ex- we've all had experiences in in Chinese hospitals, right? Uh, you, you, sadly, yes. <laughs> you, you you walk in, and there are a bunch of, of of people on the the brink, you know, lying on gurneys in in these kind of dirty halls, and, and a, ticket scalpers are trying to sell them a, right. a place in the queue. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh-huh. one would turn to any. Alternative possible, right? The, the, the endless standing in little lines and paying little fees and shuffling mm-hmm. back and forth booth to get to tests done, booth yeah. to booth, right? It's 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 horrific. And you know, then you contrast this with going to a TCM doctor as you do in your essay. And let me read again from your essay here. This is going to a TCM doctor is much like going to an alternative medicine practitioner in the West. You spend half an hour or longer talking with a nice, kind, probably quite wise person about your health, your lifestyle, the stresses you're under, and they give you some sensible advice about diet, looking after yourself, and perhaps a dose of spiritual guidance on top. Um, that's 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 very fair. I think that's um, I, I can I can understand its appeal. I mean, I I think when I when I read this, a little bit of my hostility drains off. <laughs> well, I think one of the things we have to acknowledge is that, like in all sort of um, healing traditions, TCM practitioners, particularly the the experienced, the um, more legitimate ones, they're good people. They're people who genuinely believe in what they're doing, even if that belief is um, perhaps ill-defined or fuzzy. 
they're people who have a lot of what I would call of mitis, of this kind of um, ev- of this kind of localized understanding of people of um, health of uh, people's lifestyles, of the way that people live in China. For a lot of problems, um, I think I think I can see that there being problems where you might get better results, particularly if you were Chinese and you'd grown up inside a Chinese cultural system, that you might get better results from going to a TCM doctor um, because they would give you advice that was better tailored to the way that you lived and the way that you thought than your average American doctor. I see, Jeremy, you're nodding over there. I mean, did you have the same... I mean, what happened to me when I read this piece was I came in... uh, I, I, you know, I've always been more or less implacably hostile to it, and I came out less so. I, I maybe, I mean, I think it's very, very well done because I, I think perhaps you were naive, but I mean, I think James, it's very well done because it does not, it's not hostile to Chinese medicine. Oh, yet. Well, it, 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 it is. Exa- it, no, it's not. It examines it critically. It's not hostile. Okay, okay. okay. I think that's a. I mean, that's I say the word hostile with um, exaggeration. I mean, I mean, I, you know, the first time somebody explained to me why they thought there was some uh, use in like Western uh, alternative medicine and in, in, in Chinese medicine was with the idea that, uh, you know, I think it's apocryphally Chinese thinking that in the West, when you get sick, you go to the doctor and you pay the doctor. But in China, you're supposed to just go to the doctor every week and pay them and then you don't pay them when you get sick uh, I don't That's know if you've heard, have you not heard actually that? true but yeah uh, you know it's, um, <laughs> it's a nice thought who's naive now Jeremy <laughs> but I mean I, I think you know that kind of thinking yeah you know exactly what is in James's article you, you talk to somebody about your lifestyle you know okay you shouldn't drink so much don't eat so much chili you know try and sleep more I mean I, western doctors deal with you know I don't know what percent of the average general practitioner's cases are just lifestyle issues. So that does make a lot of sense. And while, while we're still in the positive column here, um, you also suggest, James, that TCM is strongest where conventional medicine is weak on um, things like chronic back pain and treating migraines and, you know, fatigue. And well, these, yeah. yeah, I think it's, it's not that it's strong in actually having non-placebo treatments to offer. It's, it's that Western medicine in some of these cases can, also doesn't have none also really doesn't have non-placebo treatments to offer for some things. Um, and baldness, for instance. Um, baldness, you're pretty much, you know, you're screwed either way. Um, well, I think you rubbed ginger on your scalp. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, when... The, the thing is, is that what you're doing, Kaiser? <laughs> with with the actually ginger. fighting against the... Um, so th- stuff, chronic, chronic illnesses, cr- uh, chronic pain, this kind of thing. Um, first of all... A lot of it is psychological. I, I, I was going to, and it, and spiritual psychological cures are going to be the best cures for that. Cures that make sense to you within the belief system that you've grown up in, or within a belief system that makes uh, a, an emotional connection with you, as traditional as TCM does for many uh, Western people, and it makes this emotional connection because it appeals to things that we're missing in our in our everyday lives. It appeals to this sense of things being natural, it appeals to the sense that things are connected. You know, we are the product of millions of years of of evolution with systems clutched together by this process, many of which are ineffective or liable to break down. We are tiny specks in the universe. These are, it's very comforting to be told that we're not. And when we get that comfort, and I don't think that's a false comfort, I think 
that it's a it's a real and a meaningful thing it makes us feel better it makes us feel it and feeling better you know has real physical effects absolutely all right now we've given the tcm people enough positive coverage let's get into the negative okay. why why is it why is it dangerous it's dangerous for a number of reasons the first is that so there's stuff that has real effects but there's also stuff that has real effects that are poisonous um there's a bunch of tcm is massively underregulated. uh the side effects are barely covered Doctors will lie to you about there being no side effects, or it will not lie. Sometimes they genuinely believe that there are no side effects, um, and you'll get the, you get this in alternative medicine in the West too. People saying, "Oh, it's herbal. It's herbal. It's natural. It, you know, it can't harm your body because it's herbal." You know, much like um, hemlock. Um, <laughs> yeah, Socrates. <laughs> uh, well, again, hemlock in small quantities is a is a real medicine, but um, you. So there's, there's that. There's the, the massive number of side effects. There's when people neglect real available treatments in favor of TCM. Mm-hmm. Now, responsible TCM doctors, when they encounter problems, when they encounter serious health problems, will say you need to go and see a conventional doctor as well. And there are TCM doctors who are also trained as conventional doctors in some cases, and who will switch between these treatment molds depending on what the patient needs. Then there are an awful lot of TCM doctors who will continue milking the patient um, for... Uh, when they have su- when they have something that could be cleared up by antibiotics or that needs surgery, um, all these kind of things. So you get these cases in which real problems are neglect, real problems, real solutions are neglected in favor of um, quackery. You seem to have a, a particular uh, bead in your mind over uh, instances when TCM kind of cloaks itself in scientific garb, right? Well, this is because it throws away the advantage that it has. The advantage that it has is that it's a coherent, interesting historically interesting, psychologically interesting, spiritually interesting system of belief. Now when that, and when you work within that system of belief, you're going to get interesting things, as I think you are in any practice. But when you bring, when you, when you bring in pseudoscience to that, when you bring in these ideas that are not real science, are not double-blind studies and empirical investigation and all this kind of thing, you lose this. You lose the value of a coherent system. You lose the value of traditional thinking, and you create this Frankenstein's monster. Well, well, of one might counter though that the Chinese have always been syncretic. They've always uh, just sort of taken a mishmash. I mean, you you could be a Confucian, a Buddhist, and a Taoist all at once, and no one would have thought there was anything remotely strange about that. Uh, isn't this perhaps what what traditional Chinese medicine but is if doing you were Confucian with Confucian and a Taoist all at once. You would switch between Confucianism and Taoism to some extent. You right, would but, work but within one system of thought at, and then within another. Maybe you would bring in a god or two. You know, obviously Buddhism and Taoism blur gods and blur practices. But this, you, you also you would also be bringing in real practices, effective spiritually effective practices. If, for instance, Taoist monks will use Buddhist meditation practices now, mm. which, but. TCM, uh, institutionalized TCM nowadays isn't bringing in the good parts of Western science. If it was syncretic with the good parts of Western science, that would be great. It's bringing this kind of cargo cult. If we put on lab <laughs> cults and we write down numbers and we pretend to do experiments. And have how, package how, inserts in the medicines. Yes, yeah. If we, if, we, if we make a nice little thing and we give it a, and we, even if we give it a, a, its Latin name, 
um, this right. will make a seam. If you've got Kaiser, some sort of chemical uh, diagram in, in that in, insert. In the package insert, better. right. Uh, I'd like to actually, speaking of the package inserts, go back to the dangerous part. Because sure. I think for me, as the son of two pharmacists, uh, um, the, the thing that really struck out uh, in the article for me and something that I didn't really know or think about before was you talk about Chinese traditional medicines being adulterated with Western medicines. Can you, can you talk a little bit about what happens there? Well, and the numbers we have on this are from studies in the US and UK of TCM shops there, but they're using stuff imported from the mainland. Mm-hmm. So the, the same numbers apply. It might actually be a little bit worse in the mainland because there's um because everything is because <laughs> everything is yeah <laughs> so about so based on these based on these uh studies about 30 to 35 percent of tcm pharmaceuticals contain western medicines so if you think you're taking a a painkiller a herbal painkiller what you might actually be getting is like six ibuprofen plus a herb <laughs> and when i talked to people they were quite open about this they were like oh yeah of course there's you know of course there's western medicine there for the quick effect and then the chinese medicine takes care of the long-term underlying problems of course that's um, always the thing these but things, it's not labeled it? none of this stuff is labeled and you know there's the, supposed to be the uh, state administration of traditional chinese medicine is supposed to regulate this stuff but this is a body that's entirely in bed with the TCM equivalent of big pharma <laughs> that is big herbal massively poorly staffed and um, profit-driven and low quality. Um, And that makes noises about regulation but does almost nothing or very little about it. So what do you say to those people, though, who who would say, look, we have this, this, you know, two-plus-thousand-year-old pharmacopoeia that is, you know, is, is, is vast, uh, if over all this this uh, accumulated time, it has been sort of time tested. Surely there are efficacious compounds. Surely there are things that have non placebo effects, as, as you say. You know, how hard could it be to identify the specific organic compounds that have e- efficacy in treatment of certain diseases or conditions? I would say that's wonderful. This is absolutely what you should be doing, but it's exactly what's not being done. Ah, but you know, I mean, that, that's interesting because I I raise that question when when I used to be a reporter, and I would I would talk to pharmaceutical companies about this. And um, one of the, the things they said was just how incredibly difficult it is to isolate those compounds. That if you, it's, it's not just a matter of region to region, but a, 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 uh, a medicine known by the same name, uh, f- drawn from the same, supposedly from the same pharmacopoeia, could have a completely different ratio. I mean, or, you know, the way that it's put together, whether it's boiled in water, whether it's soaked in alcohol, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it has very different effects on the, on the compounds that the, uh, the, the things that are suspected of having, you don't know what the interaction is because there are so many different, um, there's so many different things that, that, sure, that can't be this isolated. Is the case with this is the case with all medicine, with all with every clue that we look to in traditional pharmacopoeias, as we did in the West. We drew most of our modern Western medicine, or a lot of it, comes out of the traditional Western pharmacopoeia. And then, over time, when as we developed uh, better methods of testing and of st- uh, stati- and better statistics, because statistics are the key to a lot of this, mm-hmm, doing good mm-hmm. statistical work, we were able to isolate and uh, identify effective treatments, but it took a huge amount of work. And there's a the thing, there's a huge amount of work being done on this, supposedly, but the vast majority of this is of a such poor quality, is such poor quality research. Give some examples. Well, for instance, the, the, the thing that really stood out for me was that only less than 15% of 
TCM research is even done single blind. So uh, just to explain to people who who don't know, uh, blinding is what means that the patient doesn't know are they receiving a are they receiving the 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 treatment or are or they the receiving placebo. a control? Right. Um, and double blind, which is the basic standard, means not only do they not know what they're receiving, but the doctor or the test the administrator also doesn't know what they're giving. And it's vital to do this because. Uh, if the patient knows or doesn't know, then the placebo then the placebo response is over is overwhelming. If they know they're being given, obviously they can't know they're give, being given a false treatment. But you need the people who are being given the false treatment to weed out the placebo effect. And the doctor, the the research, the researcher has to not know because if if they know, the, bias, the bias will right. always creep in, even unconscious bias, even things like unconsciously assigning healthier patients to the control group, uh, to, no, to healthier patients to the a uh, group that gets the uh, non-placebo treatment, the non-control group, and sicker patients to the control group, because then the healthier patients are more likely to recover, and it's more likely to seem as though your your treatment works. Right. So, and this is the, you know this is not this is something that you have to do in in every medical test. It's so basic. I mean, it's but baby do- steps. doctors you you talk to said, oh yeah, I, I mean, I deliberately assigned fewer people to the control group because. Uh, you know, I, I think it's unfair to them to not be giving them this medicine. Well, this is the thing. There's no, there's, there's, there's almost no grasp of how the most basic principles of testing work. I mean, I can't. It's hard for me to believe that. That uh, I mean, there are plenty of people who are 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 properly trained in science, and and are those resources just not being brought to bear in you know the examination of the efficacy of acupuncture or moxibustion or or you know. Well, you've Gene got you've got a bunch of factors. Or... The first factor is that, honestly speaking, the people who go into TCM, particularly at the university level, are not the most talented people. Now, they're often they're very nice people. Many of them are smart, but and TCM a couple of major TCM practitioners have have written about this. TCM is something you go into if you score like moderately on the Galcao on the <laughs> college entrance exam. You go into a TCM <clears throat> university. If you'd scored better you would have gone to study conventional medicine anyway. So there's a talent drain. There's um, overriding institutional factors. You know, there's... Because because the whole point of the TCM establishments is to prove that TCM... Not just that... It's to not test individual treatments. It's to not really sift through and discover, okay, 15% of this works. It's to try and prove... It's to try and keep the whole idea of TCM as a separate thing going. And when you prove that things work through evidence-based testing, you take that out of TCM and you put it into the, the corpus of global medicine. Right. There's this great quote from the 1930s, the day that Chinese medicine is, scientific, is scientificized is the day that it becomes cosmo- cosmopolitanized. It's a terrible... Um, yeah, I have a better there. quote from the day Tim it becomes Nixon scientific. Is, the day it becomes scientific is the day it becomes cosmopolitan. There's a uh, a better quote from Tim Minchin, who is uh, well, <laughs> yes. who says, "There's a word for alternative medicines that have been proven to work, medicine." <laughs> anyway. But there's no, there's no. The, but the TCM institutions are committed to defending TCM as a whole. So, so they don't want to prove. They don't want to to present negative results. Now, this is a problem across science as a whole. It's a problem in the West that negative results are much less likely to be published when they're very important. They're, they're, really, they're often really important results. It's very important to prove negatives. But there's all kinds of, you know, you want to find the positive result. But that's why you have these statistical controls, these testing methods in place to control your own bias. And without those, the, the work is useless. Right. 
And then on top of that, um, you have the fact that, honestly, the quality of science in the mainland as a whole is appalling. I mean, I say we say that less than 15% of uh, TCM studies are double are double blind, but an enormous amount of regular of non TCM studies are also not double blind. Um, so there's just a really low quality of scientific education tied in of, to an academic system that, as we all know, in which, as we all know, plagiarism is rife, cheating is rife, pressure from your superiors to produce is rife. Mm-hmm. So there's all these negative incentives in the mainland working against this, which means that the real work and there is real work being done by pharmaceutical companies, particularly ones with Western ties, to sift out this stuff. But this real work is being hidden in an avalanche of bullshit studies that are, for all intents and purposes, useless. Very good. One more issue that I want to talk about, and that is uh, the impact of of certain TCM uh, demand on wildlife, uh, especially in, in, in Africa and in India. Uh, we're talking about tiger bone, we're talking about rhino horn and things like that. And the, the thing that, that puzzles me, has always puzzled me, is, I mean, you know, aren't there, isn't there a whole industry of people who are pretty good at faking this stuff? I mean, you know, rhino horn is just fucking keratin and, and collagen, isn't it? I mean, tiger bone is just bone, right? Well, I mean, the, it's not like they're going to uh, uh, DNA test it. A, a lot of Western environmental groups actually over-report the damage that this is doing exactly because they don't factor in the fakes. Ah. So you get these guys. So there's an excellent uh, book called The Tiger that I completely forget the author, but it's about a Siberian tiger hunt. And he talks about uh, TCM's impact on tigers in Siberia. And he goes to Harbin and he sees all this, you know, tiger, poor tiger bone being sold everywhere. And he doesn't, he doesn't know that 90, 95% of this stuff is fake. But there is also a real trade in it. And of course, the, the connoisseurs will, you know, go out of their way to establish that this is, you know, genuine penis, um, bone, whatever. Do you know, is there any study on whether uh, Viagra and other effective erectile dysfunction treatments are having an effect on Chinese medicine? This was a big piece in your... your, It has a huge impact. It had a huge impact. It it significantly reduced reduced the use of uh, traditional medicine and also reduced things... Like, the price of seal penises went down dramatically when the oh, was introduced. I had so much money in seal penises. It's, you know, I, I had futures, but there's... Seal uh, penises was the, was the big one, right? It was one of the yeah. big ones, yeah. There's all, I mean, just about any penis, really. You right. know, take, take your pick. Not, <laughs> pick a any, penis. Any, any sufficiently any large animal. Right. Any sufficiently large penis. Um, but the, when it comes to... So, actually, my dad just worked on uh, fighting the um, impact of TCM on... Uh, endangered animals and the thing he does is he tries to work with tcm groups in china to get them to propose alternative treatments to get them to propose but not to to propose treatments that make sense within a this tcm worldview this traditional worldview of things being linked not just to say okay this active ingredient is this but to say but to effectively find different better magical solutions um, so because, go, goat horn instead of rhino horn. Yeah, kind you of know thing. this kind of thing, or this, or a, a herbal solution, a herbal solution rather than one based on an animal, or right. this kind of thing. Stuff that's rooted within tradition, um, which it's still going to have the same effect. That is none, but at least you're not killing off tigers or rhinos for it. 
So that, that's that's great. I mean, we've got a very fruitful discussion here. I think, and and I'm I'm th- I'm proud of you, Jeremy, that you didn't. Just I didn't like, rant. You didn't rant, and you didn't go completely ballistic. Well, why would I? <laughs> I'm in the company of reasonable people. Uh, very good. Very good. <laughs> let's um let's move to the section where we we make recommendations, and as usual, let's start with Jeremy. All right, I actually am going to recommend a blog and Twitter feed that maybe I've recommended before, but I just realized I took credit for linking to James's article on traditional Chinese medicine. No, I, I'm sorry, on uh, the 80s, uh, the Baling Ho, on the post-80s generation. And Which, by the way, is I, my recommendation, so don't spoil. I got the link from JK Blood Treasure, uh, a blog called Blood and Treasure, and a Twitter feed, JK Blood Treasure. I love that guy. He's funny. He's very funny, sometimes cryptic. Uh, I think he lives in Manchester, uh, has an interest in China, um, and uh, is uh, worth uh, and always smart good take. links. And, a smart and take. A smart yeah. take. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I, I occasionally write for Blood and Treasure, too, so I feel a little... Not so much nowadays, since I've been doing the own pieces, my efforts have been diverted, but I spend about a year and a half co-blogging with Jamie, who does live in Manchester. I I drink with him whenever I go back, because that's my hometown. You're a Mancunian. I'm a Mancunian. Mancunian. I Mancused you of being a man. (laughs) Very bad, but you've got to be careful with the people. But yeah, Jamie is a a, um, wonderful bloke who, despite only having actually been to China once, still understands China far better than myriads of Chinese experts. Really? He's only been He's here only once. been once. It's I amazing. And for, for, for how long? No, for no, years. He was here for a week, but he worked with Chinese... The thing is, Jamie has a, this fantastic grasp of, po- of politics, yeah. and of British politics, and of the way that people act in... Re- the, the, the motivations of people of greed, selfishness, and of the way that institutions work. And he applies that to China brilliantly. And he worked with Chinese groups, uh, Chinese political groups, and Chinese media in the UK for a long time. And so he's drawn this fantastic experience from that. But no, he's this kind of savant. Um, I actually, I keep proposing to him he should do a Kickstarter to get himself over to China for a sort of month or so, um, which I, if, if he ever does it, I encourage everybody to contribute. Um, I'll, I'll kick in. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's, 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 it's amazing. He's one of the smartest guys I know. And, you know, he, 10 posts on Blood and Treasure are worth more than uh, the entire the average David Shambaugh book, the you know. Post. <laughs> oh, <laughs> poor David Shambaugh. Okay, well, uh, James, what do you have to, to, to recommend this week? So I'm going to um, cheat slightly because this isn't out for, I think, another month, but I got my advanced copy and it was wonderful. Uh, Rana Mita's new book, China's War Against Japan. Um, Rana is a, a professor of uh, history at Oxford and a frequent mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, media you, contributor to the BBC. Uh, Cambridge. Cambridge, oh, the okay, other place. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, it's okay. It's grossly offensive. S- we will duel afterwards. Um, and this is, the f- this is the first popular treatment of the uh, anti-Japanese war. It's fantastic. It's balanced. It's humane. Um, it gives us all levels of the war. It goes into politics, but it also goes into the suffering of ordinary people, of these disasters barely known in the West, like the breaking of the dams to stop the Japanese Yeah, Jim Joe, yeah. That, that, yeah. That's astonishing. 600,000 people killed, I Un- think. Unbelievable. Something, so, yeah, an enormous s- number. You, you know, the, the, this happened in 1937 as, as, as Jiang Jiexia's troops were retreating and they were moving across the central plains of, of Henan and he instructed his... The, then the, the break that the, I mean, at that part the the river actually runs higher than the surrounding uh, the surrounding land. So if you you br- break down the dams or the the, the dikes, 
you flood the area, and he couldn't give warning, of course, and it barely slowed the Japanese advance at all. The uh, the Ming did the same against the uh, Manchu. In fact, they broke. They also broke the dams, I believe, during the the final sort of invasions, and with equally little effect, and probably and equal devastation. Huh. Um, and yeah, it's a fantastic book. Um, this is the war that made modern China. This is the war that still reverberates through the Chinese psyche. Um, this is the war that. Um, explains why people are such dicks about the Japanese. Uh, it's something, uh, it's a book I think everybody sh- who's interested in China should read. Right. Well, my father, who grew up during the war and you know had to run to the bomb shelters every night carrying his father's manuscript and his little brother, uh, it, he, he, he knows it well. Uh, I've been um, writing quite a bit and interviewing him a lot and you know le- letting him tell me stories about watching Claire Chanel and the... Uh, the flying tigers uh, in dogfights over the skies of Chongqing, which is just, I can't imagine how, how that must, must have been as a nine-year-old boy. It must have been just amazing. Anyway, um, my recommendation is something from you, uh, James, and, and I, I don't think I've ever had to do this before, but uh, we had invited James to come on and talk about his Baling Ho. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to do that, but it, it's one of the, I mean, it's, it's really a remarkable essay. I mean, uh, they, they just get written off so often. I mean, people are, because... You know, in part because the people who were writing about them are, you know, kids these days, and um, you know they're willing to so quickly swallow these stereotypes about about you know uh, the twenty somethings and the early thirty somethings in in China these days. Um, I, I recommend it very very highly. Uh, it's another nice long meaty essay that you should you should uh, in, enjoy a bagel and and uh, coffee you know, on a Sunday morning and and, and read at your leisure. Great essay. Uh, it's called The Balling Ho, and it's in Aeon. I also want to just plug Aeon, too. I think it's it's just I've been really enjoying it. There's there's so much oh, yeah. good writing. I mean, you know, obviously I'm biased, but um, almost every day, I think they – every weekday, they every produce weekday, a, yeah. a long-form piece. That's right. um, they have really good, sensitive, intelligent editors. Um and yeah, they do. They do really great work. It's I hope they keep it up. I mean, I, I I hope they're well. They're not dependent. As I say, it's private money, which means they're not dependent on um, you know, advertising or subscription or anything like this. So there's a nice guaranteed source of funding, and I think this is where we're going to get a lot of the best long form journalism in the future is. Oh, yeah from this kind of uh, private funding, whether it's through individuals or, f- or through foundations. Long live the 1%. <laughs> well, th- thanks. That was um, a really good time. I mean, I really enjoyed talking to you, James. Thanks for coming in. Jeremy, uh, how, how was that? You had a good time there? Yeah, yeah. No, 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 that was good. I mean, you interrupted me a few times. I was a bit annoyed, but that's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, I, I saw you verging into oldum. Uh, didn't want that to happen. I, you know, I don't know about this idea that I'm an asshole. Uh, oh, I think I'm I just honest. Okay. Well, there's often an overlap between the two. I'm dishonest, but much nicer. Okay. Take care. Uh, we'll see you guys next week. Actually, a real special treat for you next week. Uh, we will have Evan Osmus in his valedictory appearance on Seneca. Uh, Evan will be saying goodbye to China, uh, going and taking up a post in in, in Washington D.C. And uh, we will, we're very honored to, to be able to have him on to you know, reflect on this time in China. Take care.